Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Dr. Audrey Kurth Cronin, the director of the Carnegie Mellon Institute for Strategy and Technology. Uh, and she is the author of a great piece in Foreign Affairs, How Israel Can Win. And she's also an author of the book, How Terrorism Ends. Uh, she is also the better half of Dr. Patrick Cronin uh, of the Hudson Institute, who is a regular member of our Washington Roundtable. And as our saying here goes, one Cronin is great, two Cronins are better. Audrey, thanks so very much for making time for us. It's a pleasure, Vago. It's nice to be here as the weaker half. Uh, he's definitely the better half. <laughs> uh, I, I believe we could have a very robust debate on that. He's a marvelous man, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to put you in better half, uh, better half uh, category. And especially so since uh, this is uh, the first time that you've managed to get off since, uh, get some time off since uh, taking your new job uh, in Pittsburgh. And so many congratulations uh, on that. And you're, you're very generous uh, to spend some time with us. It's a real pleasure. I'm delighted to be at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, but it's been quite a sprint since I started there. So um, good talking to you now. Uh, indeed. And before we start, uh, a word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily coverage, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Audrey, thanks uh, again so very much uh, for uh, joining us. Um, you know, in your piece, you argue terror movements are, are very hard to exterminate. Uh, and in the wake of Hamas's devastating attacks on Israel, Israeli leaders have made it abundantly clear that they are, you know, going to destroy uh, Hamas uh, and its entire leadership and eradicate it. Um, there is a lot of rage uh, talking uh, and, and passion. Uh, there are some, including the president of the United States, who are, who are warning uh, Israel not to occupy uh, Gaza. Your piece is very thoughtful. The, the Israelis are going to be going in. But ultimately, what's the right way for them to do this so that it's not, as, as you write, potentially a lose-lose uh, scenario? The Israelis need to keep in mind that if they fail to use discriminate force and fail to live by the values that they've set forth, that ultimately not only will they fail to end Hamas, but they'll also undermine their own democracy. So my argument is not just that it's the moral and legal thing to do to protect Gazan civilians, but also because throughout the history of terrorism, overwhelming repression has almost always responded in a backlash against the country using it and has failed to end the group they're trying to end. And uh, is there any evidence, right? I mean, we've heard this message from the president of the United States. We've heard this message from the secretary of state uh, and other uh, leaders and other international leaders uh, at, at this point. Is, is there any evidence that, at least as we record this, that that is actually registering? Um, because the operation thus far, um, I mean, what they're trying to accomplish is a very difficult thing with tunnels. Uh, and units buried, um, you know, in residential areas, uh, rocket launching sites, right? I mean, under Gaza, there's something like 500 kilometers of tunnel uh, in a very, very small space. Um, you know, is there is there any evidence that it's actually registering on Israeli leaders and, and is going to shape the outcome? Or is this something we will know after we see it? 
I think it's something we will know after we see it. I certainly see a shift in President Biden's tone, urging them to live by the uh, laws of war and and to pursue the the fighters that actually carried out the atrocities, but not to make uh, Gazan civilians suffer for from the treachery and um, horrible barbarity of Hamas. So I, I see the pressure coming from the United States. I don't see a lot uh, from Israel. I'm, I'm not sure that you would expect to see public statements in the aftermath of such a traumatic ex- um, experience, but, but much depends upon whether they're going to provide an avenue for Gazan civilians uh, or, or even just provide water to those who are trapped in the north of Gaza. I don't see much yet, but I'm certainly hopeful. And I agree with you completely with the uh, inevitability uh, of this, right? I mean, the important thing is knowing exactly what you want to accomplish and the goal of we're going to crush them, right? I mean, we had to go to Afghanistan after 9-11 as well, even if we maybe didn't execute it, uh, right? Or or didn't have a particular plan at the moment, aside from we're going to topple Al-Qaeda and we sort of didn't even get that right. Ultimately, what are good historical examples that the Israelis can rely on to at least do this as well as possible without causing more problems down downstream or even immediately? Well, unfortunately, most cases of repression have resulted in causing the conflict to transition into a different kind of phase. It's very difficult for democracies to use repression effectively. So uh, there are not a lot of great cases that I would call successes, but there are ways to to use military force well and poorly. And you can learn a lot from the learning process that happens when uh, military organizations of states try to carry out counterterrorism. And there've been quite a number of cases of repression where if all you want to do is kill everyone, you certainly can do that. But um, Usually what happens is that the group regenerates afterwards, because remember that terrorism is is a threat, is a type of force that uses leverage in order to gain power. And it's it's only very rarely that there's a relationship between the terrorist group and the state. And that's where things end. It's not just a dichotomous relationship of one side hitting the other. It's not like two states fighting each other. It's about who is the terrorist group trying to reach? What is their policy of leverage? Who is their audience that they're trying to reach? And in this case, I think that the Palestinians are using uh, provocation, very time-honored and classic uh, terror strategy in order to get a state to overreact and therefore reach a broader audience. And mobilization, which is particularly easy in our current communications environment. Mobilization is becoming more and more predominant as a primary tactic for any terrorist group. Um, So how, right, I mean, at the end of the day, you're uh, finding an ideology, right? It took decades uh, to get here. uh, And, you know, we heard Congressman Seth Moulton say this. My old boss used to say it, right? Uh, When, you know, he was a reporter, uh, Robert Hodierne, he was um, a reporter. He went to Vietnam. Then he uh, ended up in the army and was got sent to Vietnam and he was a comrade cameraman. Uh, and he noted, you know, when he, the village he visited 40 years afterward, um, you know, he asked 
you know, when, when did you guys become a Viet Cong village? And the young man who he had met in 1968 told him, well, the day you killed my brother and burned my village down. And that's when you lost this entire uh, region. So ultimately, it's an ideology that can be driven by grievance, um, you know, some of which spans back in this particular case to 1948. But ultimately, what's the right way to fight this ideological battle uh, against the 30 or 30,000 or so Hamas fighters, right? I mean, all 2.4 million Gazans uh, are, don't constitute Hamas. Well, Vago, I see it just a little bit differently. I don't see it as a strictly ideological battle. There are many ideologies that resurface throughout history. But what the Israelis are fighting right now is a group that used horrendous uh, violence and atrocities against them. And so terrorism is something that can be driven by an ideology. But that's not the same as saying that it's the ideology itself that you're fighting. Oftentimes, you can crush a terrorist group but the ideology will persist in some more moderate form. The, the best example of that is uh, Sendero Luminoso right. in Peru. Path. When the Peruvian government, yeah, Shining Path, exactly. When the Peruvian government crushed Shining Path, um, unfortunately, it also killed, indirectly at least, killed the democracy of Peru because right. President Fujimori then dissolved Congress and the judiciary in his, in his self-coup. And... Um, various extreme policies that followed after that resulted in um, a, a really dark time for Peru. And Sendero Luminoso actually still exists. So what, you, what he did was destroy the Peruvian democracy temporarily. Uh, and ultimately, the state came to a new equilibrium. So, you know, repression actually causes a, a tremendous cost on the part of the state that is engaging in it. It's not just a matter of fighting an ideology. It's a matter of targeting the specific people who are carrying out violence against civilians in the name of that ideology. Uh, and and the point I was trying to make was, right, I mean, there is at least ideological underpinning. And, and unfortunately, every person you kill creates more terrorists who, who uh, prepare uh, to go in the breach. So I wasn't at all trying to uh, say that there wasn't a, a brutal and savage component to this, which unfortunately over time has just become more savage and more uh, brutal, uh, unfortunately, as as we saw thereby, right, the comparison uh, to uh, of Hamas, Hamas having made that transition to uh, ISIS uh, in, in, in that case, in terms of the brutality. Ultimately, you... You, you need, as we found, for example, in Afghanistan and in Iraq, you've got to play the whack-a-mole element of it, where you are uh, going after the worst of the worst, uh, while also trying to win over sort of hearts and minds, right? If there are those who've recommended to the Israelis, hey, you know, go in with food, water, and, and medicine and be, um, you know, uh, uh, attract uh, Gazans. Uh, to you uh, that you will be treated justly, for example, and and this these these uh, operations are very targeted. It appears that these are, operations are as targeted as you can be in one of the most densely packed places in the world. What would a new model for this invasion be? What are the components and elements you need to have? Because it doesn't seem abundantly clear to me that when I talk to folks in Israel, there's much of an interest or a stomach to do all of this other stuff, come in with the food, come in with the water, come in with the medicine and the fuel, right? It, it seems like it's gonna be a more military heavy operation when we see it. What what does, if you were designing this campaign on their behalf, what would it look like? 
Sure. Well, let me first talk about two other examples of campaigns in similar situations that I think they should not be following. Um, One is uh, the Russian campaign against the Chechens. The Russians are very, uh, their their playbook almost exclusively goes towards repression, towards using overwhelming military force when it comes to terrorism. And that's what they did with the Second Chechen War in 1999. And that war killed 25,000 civilians and displaced hundreds of thousands of others. And ultimately, you know, Grossing was leveled and the Chechen terrorist threat, uh, so said Putin, had been eliminated, except what happened is what often happens. And that is that there was a spread of that threat to the broader region. You had the Dubrovka Moscow theater uh, attack in 2002, shortly afterwards, the Beslan school massacre, where all those little kindergartners were were mm-hmm. were killed in, by the hundreds. The Russians have tried to use repression in this indiscriminate or sort of broad and occupying way, and they've almost always made the problem worse. The the whole Chechen problem spread throughout Ingushetia, Dagestan, and ultimately we were dealing with Chechens who were fighting in the Middle East against us. So. That's an example of what not to do. Another example of what not to do is what the Sri Lankans did with the Tamil tigers. They they definitely killed all of the Tamil tigers. There were ten to th- ten to fifteen thousand members of the Tamil tigers, really sophisticated terrorist organizations. But they also killed forty thousand civilians. And there's a huge aftermath of trauma in Sri Lanka that the UN has been. Uh, writing reports about publishing reports recently, trying to get the number of disappeared clearly defined, trying to find out what happened to all the people who had died in that in that horrendous uh, battle. And ultimately what happened also in Sri Lanka was that it became a civil war. So to get to your question, Vago, if the Israelis take approaches that are similar to what the Sri Lankans or the Russians take, and they engage in indiscriminate repression, they... Um, bomb everyone who's in the north of Gaza, including the hospitals. They allow so many of the Gazans who have now fled to the south of Gaza to die in horrendous situations where they can't even get water. If the Israelis become responsible for that, they're going to work against their own interests by losing the broader fight, which happens in the eyes of the audience. And it it seems like a kind of an esoteric thing to argue. Obviously, those in Israel who have lost loved ones and those who are very understandably driving this campaign think it, it's naive to worry about uh, any kind of uh, more discriminate force. You know, the, the, the idea is to try to get rid of Hamas by any means possible at any cost. This has been stated over and over again. But the truth of the matter is that you can't win that way. Ultimately, what what will happen eventually with Hamas is that they will resurge in the guise of another group in another place within the region. If it doesn't spin out of control within the region, then at the very least, you will not be ending Hamas. You have to distinguish between Hamas and the Palestinians who live in Gaza who don't necessarily support Hamas for strategic reasons, not just for humanitarian and moral reasons. Uh, Well... I, I think a lot of people would absolutely agree with that, but go ahead. So so what the Israeli strategy should be in order to win, I believe, is discriminate targeting that we've already explored in some depth. Uh, that means trying to get better intelligence, trying to specifically target members of Hamas, particularly the military wing, help the fleeing Gazans go somewhere 
uh, and make sure that you've got some kind of regional cooperation, either on the part of the Egyptians or perhaps using external actors, even including the UN, make some provisions for the Gazans so that they don't die by the scores, avoid the hospitals even in North Gaza. Yes, the uh, Hamas fighters will will use those hospitals as uh, sanctuaries. They'll use the the people who are in them as human shields. These are horrible, treacherous things to do. But the Israelis can go into Gaza and fight the Hamas fighters street to street, as is inevitably going to happen, and they will be able to win eventually. But they cannot be seen to be targeting hospitals, or they're going to inflame the entire region and lose the kinds of support that they currently have in the aftermath of their tragedy. They also have to stop supporting the West Bank settlers movement, this very aggressive degree to which the particularly the right wing elements of the Netanyahu government have been increasing the amount of uh, territory that they're gaining and therefore making any kind of shred, even hint of a two state solution go away. They have to give Mahmoud Abbas some kind of they have to give him some shred of legitimacy if he's not going to or if he's if his uh, supporters in the Palestinian in the West Bank are not going to just join into this and the Israelis will have both territories fighting against them on both sides. And then, of course, there's Iran. The United States is helping with Iran um, and Hezbollah. They could have a fight in the north, particularly if they don't treat the Gazans with um, some humanitarian uh, avenues, as I've just described. And they need political unity at home. You know, Bibi Netanyahu combining with Benny Gatz, that's that's a temporary short term thing in the long term. If they don't have political unity, what's going to happen is this terrorist attack will result in um, undermining Israeli democracy more than had already been the case with the attempted judicial, potential attempted judicial reforms. So this really worries me about the nature of Israeli democracy in addition to whether they can be militarily successful against Hamas. Because if you look at all of the historical examples that they're following in the aftermath of this kind of traumatic attack, So often what happens is not just the cost to Hamas, Gaza civilians, the Palestinians on the West Bank, you know, the the Israeli Arabs, as they're called within, you know, 20 percent of Israelis, Israel's population is what they call the air, you know, the Arab Israelis, Israeli Arabs. But, you know, they're they're going to be deeply disillusioned. And um, ultimately what's going to happen is Israeli democracy is going to take it. A very very strong hit, as will the Jewish Israelis. Um, how does um, you know you you uh, mentioned uh, that this uh, crisis could get uh, a lot worse? Um, there are some in Israel who are putting their hopes that the Palestinian Authority can somehow take over, but unfortunately, the uh, the uh, Netanyahu administration has done their best to try to undermine as much as possible the Palestinian Authority, and unfortunately, for a very uh, multiplicity of very cynical reasons, um, sort of ended up oddly supporting uh, Hamas. Uh, you know, pretty much to be able to point to the, there and say, "Well, we can't negotiate with terrorists." Um, 
there is a danger this will spiral out of control. The United States has two aircraft carrier uh, battle groups uh, that are going to be off the coast shortly. Uh, there's a Marine amphibious uh, unit that will be there, and 2,000 Americans are going to be deployed on the ground in Israel, uh, it appears, uh, in a support function. What is the United States, what's the role the United States can play in this? And Audrey, does the United States get pulled into this Anyway, as as we already are, right? I mean, we're already supplying Israel with with weapons, uh, obviously using military capabilities to to try to reassure and take some pressure off of Israeli forces. How does this end, and where does it go, and how does you know what what does the U.S. involvement going to end up looking like, whether we like it or not? Well, the U.S. is naturally involved because uh, the U.S. is a strong supporter of Israel. But I think actually sending the aircraft carriers to the region is a great move because it makes it less likely that you're going to have Iran and Hezbollah joining the fight. So I don't see it as something that's going to spiral the crisis out of control. I see it as one of the brighter elements of this because it's more likely to prevent the crisis from getting much worse. It's more likely to prevent those people that Hamas was, was trying to draw into their orbit Iran, Hezbollah, broader supporters for the Palestinians. It's going to prevent them from joining into this um, violence, I hope. I'm not sure what else we could have done. I think it was a very wise move to try to prevent uh, or at least signal Iran and and Hezbollah. Yeah, and completely agree uh, that it was uh, had the intended effect, and you know, doing it quickly, even if if it was right. I mean, both of these carriers were supposed to be in the Mediterranean anyway, so you know, just moving them to the other side of the Mediterranean, um, you know, was not that big of a lift. But as this, if this does spiral badly, right? What are what are the next steps that we need to be considering? Uh, maybe to sharpen my question, and what is it? potentially end up looking like because you know even if you park an aircraft carrier uh, off of somebody's coast it doesn't automatically mean that you know you'll you'll get the behavior you'd like you may end up getting behavior you don't uh, at the at the end of the day anyway so thinking a couple of steps ahead what does this potentially look like well i think that we can't answer that question with strictly focus on the military side right. I think that you have to do exactly what um, Secretary of State Blinken is doing, which is going around to all the Arab countries. He's also been talking to uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, trying to make sure that you have a regional approach, getting the Egyptians to take some Gazans so as to let some of the huge humanitarian pressure um, dissipate and also to do the right thing for those civilians. We have to think not just in military terms, but far more importantly, in diplomatic terms. And I think, you know, providing economic support, uh, providing economic incentives to regional partners to be able to uh, help with the humanitarian crisis of the Gazans. Those are parts of our toolkit that we don't focus near enough attention on. And I think it's time to do even more. I mean, it's a real shame that the State Department does not have a little bit more power and support within our own government that they could have a broader voice to, you know, a a bigger role and much more um, power in the region itself. Even in uh, the last week, we've seen terror acts worldwide. A French teacher in France was stabbed to death. Uh, There was a six-year-old American boy of Palestinian descent 
uh, who was also stabbed to death and his mother, mother's in critical condition. She couldn't even attend the funeral of her son. Uh, and, and just uh, yesterday, two Swedish soccer fans uh, were shot to death in Belgium. Do, do we need to prepare? Well, first, are we going to see a global wave of terror after this? And, you know, what, what do we do? I mean, does, does all the preparation that we did after 9-11 and in the decades since kind of end up holding us in good stead, ultimately, to, to keep us safer? Or are there going to be so many ad hoc things that will happen in a heavily armed nation that actually policing it will be different because it'll be a landlord who gets mad and, you know, this guy had a knife. If he'd had a gun, he'd have used a gun, presumably. Well, I think we are going to see more anti-Semitic violence because that was one of the audiences that the Palestinians were aiming for. Unfortunately, as we learned from uh, the experience with ISIS, there is an attempt by some groups, particularly that have direct access to social media and other direct forms of communication. There is an avenue for them to use repulsive violence in order to try to show agency and also gain followers and to take advantage of the most bestial aspects of human nature. So that is definitely happening. And I think that's probably going to get worse with respect to anti-Semitic violence uh, throughout the world. I don't think it's going to be a global movement. I think it's going to be the kind of fractionated violence that we've already seen with our mass shootings in the United States and that we've already seen with um, extremist groups growing. And in a strange way, I would never have predicted 10 years ago, copying right-wing groups copying jihadist narratives and actually trying to be more like isis this is a chilling uh, development in the world of terrorism and counterterrorism, and i think it's going to be um, exacerbated by this crisis but i i will say that we are much better prepared than we used to be for um broad-scale terrorism that's why i don't think it's going to be a global movement I do think, however, that there are going to be individual attacks that are impossible to foresee and that continue to happen. You know, in in any crisis, obviously, it's important to understand, you know, the underlying drivers. We didn't get to where we are overnight, but over decades of poor uh, decisions, whether it was arrogance, pride, cynicism, cleverness, what have you. What are the keys to reconciliation over the long term? Because there are those voices uh, in Israel as well as elsewhere, who argue, you know, revenge may feel good, but ultimately, where does this sort of get us? Well, I would answer that question by going back to the many different types of ways that we can end groups. It's uh, negotiation is one form of ending. And I think it's inevitable that um, the Israeli government is going to have to engage in some kind of long in the long term, in some kind of um, talks that find a better future, a better way forward for the Palestinians. There's simply no getting around it. I mean, this this entire attack shows us that the Netanyahu Netanyahu approach of just continuing to build up settlements, of assuming that everything could the, you know, everything could just continue as it was, that has completely failed. I just hope that the military response that's happening right now doesn't eliminate consideration of all the other kinds of responses that have very successfully led to the end of terrorism in the past. Repression is only one repression by which I mean the the overwhelming use 
of military force. But um, there are six other, five other patterns of ways that groups have ended. And if you look through the history of terrorism, oftentimes they're quite successful. Uh, targeting, uh, capturing and killing the leader is one of them. I think that the Israelis are very good at that. And if they if they focus very heavily upon Hamas's leadership structure, they will degrade Hamas. Negotiations is a second pathway. And I think it's inevitable that they're going to have to get back into negotiations at some point or they're going to continue to have this problem. It's an impossible thing to talk about right now. It would be naive and stupid of me to suggest that this could happen now. But I think we're going to have to have some kind of an agreement with the Palestinians uh, in future years if we're going to end this threat for good. Uh, you know, success is another way that sometimes groups end, and that's not going to happen in this case. Success is rare, but sometimes groups have used terrorism in order to ob obtain their objectives in a, in a few cases. The, the case that comes to mind uh, for me is Umkanto, which was the military wing of the African National Congress. And with the ending of apartheid, they, they were successful. Only that military wing was a terrorist group. And Mandela decried their behavior as soon as he came into power. But they, they did have a role to play and their goals were achieved. But it's extraordinarily rare. And through the history of terrorism, you really only see that in fewer than 5% of the cases, if that. Another pattern that I think could be very important and we should think about in addition to repression is failure. And that is that the group implodes and burns out and collapses in upon itself. And groups usually fail either because of um, they lose popular support or they engage in infighting. And when you had the rise of Hamas and the fighting of the uh, the, the, the folks in the West Bank and the members of Hamas, there was um, fratricide within the Palestinian movement. That kind of fratricide, that kind of failure would be a very predictable outcome for Hamas if the Israelis were smart enough not to use so much repression that they united all of the Palestinians and many of their outside supporters against them. So that's one of the reasons why I think overwhelming use of force and repression is particularly dangerous because it prevents you from following other pathways that are more likely to lead to the end of a group. I mean, look, you know, Israeli friends have been proposing, okay, who's the guy, right? It's 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 not uh, going to be Abu Mazen. Uh, obviously, none of the Hamas leaders, right? I mean, Israeli leaders uh, have already said that you know they're all dead men, uh, and and some of them are dead now. Um, you know, is is it? You know, is is the trick now finding somebody who becomes the Mandela? I mean, some have proposed Marwan uh, uh, Bargudi. Um, it's not necessarily clear that would be would be a voice. But I mean, is is the trick now finding somebody who could be that leader? Because then the problem is right a question of legitimacy. If if the Israelis are the ones proposing them many Palestinians are going to look like, okay, well, you're bankrupt. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Abu Mazen faces that challenge now, uh, you know, by some who are like, hey, you continue to collaborate with the Israelis and the Israelis are arming settlers that come after us, uh, right? I mean, what's what's the trick in sort of identifying kind of a unifying leader or is that something that the Palestinians uh, have to come up with on on who could be a unifying leader? Which is- you know. Yeah. So, Vago, you've put your finger on the, the greatest tragedy, in my view, of the Palestinian people. They need to produce a leader 
that can be that shining example of legitimacy. And that can't be imposed upon them from outside. This is one of the reasons why the Palestinians are such a tragic case. I can't tell you who that leader should be, but I can agree with you that they definitely need to have one. Uh, let me ask you one last uh, question, which is backlash. Uh, you know, Israel, um, you know, did experience just a very profound uh, tragedy. Uh, it is uh, going to lash out, unfortunately, as as great powers uh, do, um, and has also shown a tolerance to be able to stand up to international pressure. In 2006, uh, even Nasrallah was stunned uh, at the Israeli response, and arguably it, it has bought deterrence uh, since 2006. Uh, by his own accord, right? I wouldn't have done this if I'd have known the reaction was going to be that bad. And, and the Israelis refer to it as the crazy landlord. Uh, the landlord goes goes crazy. Um, ultimately, what's the line that Israel doesn't end up undermining itself uh, in the international community? Because there are, there are some who are staunch supporters of Israel who are finding it increasingly difficult to support some of the things that are happening right now. Um, well, that's an easy one because the line is right now at the Egyptian border uh, in the Rafah crossing. That's the line. So the Israelis, if they can't find a way to deal more effectively with the Gazans who are trying to flee from Israeli use of force, they will have crossed the line and they will have lost their ability to have a strategic outcome that would serve Israeli interests. Audrey, thank you uh, so very much for joining us. I should also say that you're author of uh, several other books, including Power to the People, uh, which is something that I would like you to come back and talk to us about, because this conflict is actually showing um, how modern technology is is just changing uh, the dynamic in absolutely fascinating uh, ways. So thanks so much for joining us and look forward to having you back on. Thanks, Vago. It's been a real pleasure.